You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 511 for February 26, 2020. On today's show, author Terry Teachout. The Jazz Session turns 13 years old this week. My dream is to make 2020 the year that the show becomes financially sustainable and also my main occupation. Can you help me? You can become a member today for five or ten bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. I get it if you can't afford that, but my guess is that most folks listening to this show probably can and just choose not to. So I'd ask you to make the other choice and join today. Thanks. Terry Teachout is the author of, among other things, Duke, A Life of Duke Ellington. Teachout, welcome to the jazz session. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Uh, as I've been kind of talking about on social media, I just recently finished and was absolutely in love with your book, Duke, A Life of Duke Ellington. Uh, this is a, a follow-up in a, in a manner of speaking to a very acclaimed biography you did of Louis Armstrong, which I have not read, so cannot comment intelligently on. But I thought Duke was wonderful, and I guess uh, I'll start with maybe the most obvious question, which is why Ellington? After I wrote the Armstrong book, I was trying to decide what I wanted to do next. And it's usually been my practice is to use a phrase that Noel Coward used to say to try to come out of another hole. But then I thought, why? It's a perfectly logical thing to go from Armstrong to Ellington. They're the two great bookends of classic jazz. And they're both larger than life figures who lend themselves to full-scale biographical treatment and Ellington is a very complicated personality I mean aside from his significance as an artist, which is tremendous He's just an interesting person to write about an interesting person to tell the story of and uh, I knew that before I started writing but once I really got going uh, I learned even more how fascinating a character he is and I had read a number of years ago, Music is My Mistress, and I finished that book thinking, I'm not really sure I know anything more about Duke Ellington <laughs> than when I started reading it. <laughs> and so when I read uh, Duke, your book, I as I was getting into it, I was just over and over again uh, reading out loud to my partner and saying, hey, did you know this thing? And oh, hey, did you know this thing? It just – it made him into a human being, which – before, he'd just been like a face on Mount Rushmore. I mean, he just, you know, he was a larger-than-life figure in the music world, but I didn't know very much about him at all just as a human being, just as a, a man living life. And I think that's one thing that your book does so well, is to turn him into a person. Well, 
Music is My Mistress is certainly an interesting book, and it does tell you things about Ellington, but it tells you precisely the things he wants you to know and not an inch more. It is very evasive, as was his practice. Uh, he was he was a man who liked covering his tracks, and um, his voice comes through in Music is My Mistress, but I'm not sure how much else does. So I really wanted, you put your finger on it, I wanted to convey him as a personality and then to relate that personality to the art, which is the great challenge of every artistic biographer. Um, the, the, the man creates art and the art comes from the man. What is the connection? In Ellington's case, he is such a vivid personality that, you know, you really can't go wrong. If you can't write an interesting biography of Duke Ellington, you're in the wrong business. <laughs> you uh, mentioned in the afterword of the book, and I looked it up right before we talked, so I'm going to paraphrase. I might get it wrong. But that uh, at writing a book like this is an act of synthesis. And I wondered how difficult it was to write, uh, given one of the things I learned in the book was how how private a person Ellington was and how much he kind of concealed his interior life from the world around him. Was it a challenge for you? I mean, just in terms of finding enough information that could make him into a full flesh and blood person in this book? No, no. The material is all out there. I mean, not just in, in his own archival material. But remember, this is a man who lived a very public life for a very long time. Uh, I had no shortage of, of material. So when I say that it's an act of synthesis, what I'm getting at is that I had all of this information. And you have to sift through it and, and, and weigh it and, and test it. You're dealing, as, as we've said a moment ago, with a man who believes deeply in self-concealment. And so you take no statement that he makes about himself or his art at face value. Um, everything Ellington said about himself was revealing, but it didn't necessarily reveal uh, what it seemed to. So uh, that was the hard part, I think, was to, to accept that Unlike Louis Armstrong, who was an extremely straightforward man who left behind a lot of, of autobiographical writings, but wrote them to explain himself, Ellington wrote and spoke to conceal himself. And so you just have to, you have to approach with great caution anything he tells you about himself. started this book where would you place yourself on the spectrum of ellington fans had you um, of course like anybody who listens to the music that we listen to you can't avoid ellington and many of us dive deeper but where where were you on that spectrum 
Oh, I was a tremendous admirer of Ellington. I had started to listen to his music when I was in junior high school. I mean, I became interested in playing the bass, jazz bass, as a junior high school kid from hearing the records that uh, Jimmy Blanton played on uh, with the Ellington Band. So for all that time, uh, Ellington had really been central to my life as a, as a musician and listener. And I can assure you that the experience of writing about him did not diminish my admiration for his achievement at all. It made me more realistic about him. It, it gave me a clearer sense of what in his output works best, what doesn't, why it doesn't work, when it doesn't work. But the admiration and the liking for the music was enhanced. As for how I felt about the person, that was somewhat different. After spending several years with Louis Armstrong writing a book about him, you, you come away from that kind of experience really loving the man. Uh, I can't honestly say, having uh, spent all that time with Duke Ellington, so to speak, that I would necessarily have wanted to uh, to work for him, shall we say. <laughs> However, had you worked for him and were you a good inventor of licks, we'd probably know some of your songs at this point. <laughs> because... Yeah, the, the, tr the trouble is, you'd think they were Ellington. Exactly. Songs. We wouldn't know your name. That would be the problem. Uh, uh, you, know, you might you might not. Yeah. I mean, we're, you've really put your finger on something very important about Ellington, his relationship with the members of his band, and something that I've gone to an enormous amount of trouble in the book to tease apart, which is what is Duke Ellington doing as a composer? Um, and the best way to understand him, I find, is to compare him to a film director, specifically somebody like Orson Welles, uh, someone who is a great master, a genius, uh, a very great artist, but who is not as totally responsible for his work as he wants you to think, who is a bit of a credit hog. Uh, Ellington was most certainly that. Somebody who, who uses the magic wand of his own genius to take the input of his collaborators and make it his own. Uh, and in the end, it is Ellington who signs the pieces, just as it's Orson Welles who signs his movies, and he deserves that credit. But it's just as important to know that uh, he didn't necessarily write the tunes that he's credited for. That's one of the things that I talk about in considerable detail in this book. And it's one of the places where I found myself having two reactions at once, because you do talk about that a lot in the book. And on the one side, the the credit hog element of it uh, is, you know, off-putting. On the other side, the fact that he could hear a warm-up lick that a guy in his band played and make out of it an indelible piece of music that has lasted all of this time is clearly a work of both synthesis and genius. And That's exactly right. You don't you don't exactly finish this book with a clear and of course, like any human, you're not supposed to finish it with a clear picture of just all good or all bad. But you certainly don't come to the end of this book thinking, oh, OK, well, that's a neat, tidy life that is easy to understand. It it really does have some light and dark in there. That's right. It really does. And there's nothing tidy about Ellington's story. Nothing at all. Least of all. Uh, and it's I think time for us to talk about this. 
his relationship with his closest and most important collaborator, Billy Strayhorn. I spent a lot of time, there's a whole chapter in the book devoted to Strayhorn specifically because of the nature of their uh, collaborative relationship. Strayhorn wrote music that Ellington took complete credit for. He also wrote pieces uh, that Ellington had input into, but he, he wasn't Ellington's ghostwriter. You know, a lot of people who have developed a kind of reflexive hostility to Ellington take for granted that Strayhorn wrote all the good stuff, and that's just not true. It's not even slightly true. But it is true that Strayhorn wrote some some of the best stuff. And when I say he wrote it, I mean he wrote it. He put his pen on the paper, composed it, and in the last half of their collaborative years, they co-signed everything that they both worked on. Uh, all of the, the big suites, like the, the, the Far East suite, are credited to Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn. And that's like Lennon and McCartney. Um, there's a sense in which it's true, and there's a sense in which it's not true. And so, for me, one of the most important aspects of this book, and we have we have the archival material to answer this question is to try to help people understand who wrote what and help them draw their own conclusions about what difference it makes. Uh, it does make a difference. It makes a difference to some extent in terms of Ellington's character and in terms of Strayhorn's character too. Billy Strayhorn is a very fascinating character in his own right. He has been written about well by David Haydew uh, in a book of his own. And he worked with Ellington because he wanted to. For one thing, Strayhorn did not want to be completely out front as a public character. Billy Strayhorn was homosexual at a time when a jazz musician writing for one of the famous big bands could not be out uh, and, and be gay. Uh, but Strayhorn wanted to live his own life without interference. And that's one of the reasons why he accepted uh, the subordinate position that he took uh, with Ellington. Now, all this is talked about in the book. It's important. It's not just important for understanding Strayhorn, but it's also important for understanding Ellington, too. Ellington was the sort of person who was willing to set up a relationship with Strayhorn in which he took credit for things that he didn't deserve. Jazz Session really is the first and oldest jazz interview podcast. It started 13 years ago this week, back when very few people knew what a podcast was, and most folks thought you needed an iPod to listen to one. The show is still going strong, but I'd like to be able to do even more with the Jazz Session. More in-person interviews, more festival coverage, more travel. And that's possible only if you decide that you value this show enough to support it. If you do, go to thejazzsession.com slash join and become a member for 5 or $10 a month. You'll get bonus episodes, early access to every show, and more. Thanks for being here all these years. Please become part of the next 13 years by becoming a member. Now back to the show. You know, if we're talking about gray area, I mean, here's another one where 
through the medium of being associated with Ellington, Strayhorn gets access to, first of all, one of the great collections of musicians ever assembled. Oh my god, yes. And he gets the the protection, if that's the word, but the, the cover, kind of, you know, kind of socially and in the music world of the reputation of Ellington to be able to write and and contribute at a high level that as you say may not have been open to him in another set of circumstances the bargain he makes I don't think it's a Faustian bargain but it's a it's a quasi Faustian bargain it's is, a it's a little Faustian. Uh, yeah is for some things he's not going to get his name on there that's right and well I, there's another thing by the way that you're leaving out which is that uh, Ellington or the Strayhorn learned his craft from Ellington he he was classically trained. He was a trained musician. Uh, he did not. He would not have needed, I think, to to work with Ellington to become himself. But he started working with Ellington at a very early age. He learned his craft from looking at Ellington's scores, and from working with a band of musicians that of highly original idiosyncratic musicians who were put together by Ellington. And he wrote on that band, the, the way that we talk about how choreographers uh, make a dance on a dancer. It's not as though Ellington was stealing everything from Strayhorn. He was, he was sometimes stealing things from a musician who had learned his trade from him and developed his identity from him. It is, uh, this is an overused word, but it's absolutely appropriate here. It is a very symbiotic relationship. And it's one that Strayhorn agreed to. He was not always comfortable with it. Uh, for a number of years, he broke with the Ellington band uh, and tried to make his own way back in the 50s and realized that that was just not what he wanted to do. He didn't, for one thing, he didn't want the headaches of leading a band. And he and Ellington rearranged their collaboration uh, in such a way as to be more satisfactory to Strayhorn. And let us add, Billy Strayhorn was very well paid for his work. He did not always get proper uh, a proper share of the copyrights for his compositions. But uh, Ellington paid him quite a lot to be available to write music. So I think it was in some ways a devil's deal. But um, part of what it means to make a devil's deal is that it's a great opportunity, you know. There's, there's a reason why people sign those contracts. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, to turn to the music uh, a little more specifically, you said something in this book that was an aha moment for me, uh, and you mentioned it a couple times, and that had, I think, been in the back of my head, but you brought it to the front, which was that one of Ellington's skills is not particularly the writing of melodies. That's right, and that surprised me. I hadn't really thought that through when I started working on the book. I mean, I was very familiar with Ellington's music, but I, I never sat down and asked myself, this was the kicker for me. Who wrote the tunes that made Duke Ellington famous? When you're a composer, tunes are not everything. And with Ellington, tunes are not everything. But when you're a popular composer, tunes are what make you money because they're what are, they're what are turned into songs and songs are what sells. And I was quite struck when I began to really investigate the songs, the pop songs that Ellington is credited with having written and discovered that in virtually all cases, the melodic material came not from Ellington, either totally or even at all, but from members of the band, from Johnny Hodges, from Lawrence Brown, uh, from Barney Begard, um, people who 
played a lick on the stand, brought Ellington a tune, this, that. I mean, there were different ways how it came about. Ellington might write the bridge, and his bridges tend to be a little nondescript when he's fulfilling that function. But the melodies of, of songs like Sophisticated Lady, Mood Indigo, uh, the hits, the Ellington hits, come from other sources. They are not by Ellington. He takes them and he turns them into compositions. And that is a very important achievement. It is not in any way to be vouchsafed, but it is not the same thing as being the sole creator. Help us understand a little more about Ellington's particular genius at turning melodic material into compositions. He would hear you play something on the bandstand. Uh, this happened a lot with Johnny Hodges. Hodges is the, the great alto saxophone soloist at the Ellington band, played virtually the whole of his adult life he spent uh, in the band. And he was an extremely fertile uh, melodist. Uh, he, had, he had that priceless knack of being able to improvise melodies, licks on the blues, things like that. Ellington would hear, say, a, a Hodges counter melody to a, a well-known popular song, something that Hodges is improvising on the bandstand. And he would say to himself, that's a song. So he'd, he'd scribble it down and then he'd write a bridge for it if he needed to, which he usually needed to. And then he'd take this tune, this 32-bar tune, and turn it into a composition. Because a melody is not a composition. It's just a tune. You know, he would create its, its, its structure um, from beginning to end. He would orchestrate it for the band. And suddenly you would have, I let a song go out of my heart, which is one of the, the best-known examples of a great Ellington composition whose tune was improvised by somebody else, and in this case, Johnny Hodges. Almost like variations on a theme, what a classical musician would say. Um, and the genius comes from, first of all, being able to recognize through the ear the potential of the raw material that Hodges was just throwing out on the bandstand and realizing that you could take it and spin something larger out of it. Now, Hodges finally became rather suspicious about that. Um, <laughs> he, he, had a, he had a phrase he used to use with Ellington. He'd, he'd, he'd play something and he could see the Duke was thinking it over and he'd say, come out of the kitchen, baby. <laughs> and every once in a while, when the Ellington band was on the stand playing one of the, the compositions that Hodges had supplied the melody for, Hodges would mime counting money on the bandstand. <laughs> now... 
Here's something, here's something important we haven't mentioned. Ellington, this wasn't highway robbery. Uh, usually, um, once this process became sort of established, Ellington would pay cash on the barrel head to musicians for the complete rights to a lick or a melody. But he'd keep the royalties. He wouldn't, they wouldn't co-sign it with him, and they wouldn't get composer's credit for it. Uh, in very few cases, uh, the best known of which is Mood Indigo, uh, and Barney Begard had to uh, go to court to uh, get full credit for that, is there a shared composer's credit uh, for these pieces. You have some interview excerpts in the book with uh, various musicians from Ellington's band, not really begrudging that, you know, saying he offered me this cash and I took it and what he did with it afterward is, you know, kind of his business. Yeah. And Strayhorn w was very clear about this, too. I mean, he said, OK, fine, but uh, what about these guys? You know, uh, if they're such great composers, how come they never wrote anything outside the context of the Ellington band? And that really is putting your finger absolutely on the in the bullseye. Um, uh, it was Ellington who saw the potential of these melodic fragments and who turned them into something of lasting, indeed permanent value. Who deserves the credit? Just, just the, we mentioned Orson Welles a few minutes ago. Who deserves the credit for Citizen Kane? The first draft of the screenplay was written by Herman Mankiewicz uh, with John Hausman editing him all along the way. Orson Welles really couldn't write much at all as a screenwriter. What he was was an editor of genius, and then the guy who took these words on the page and pulled them off the page and put them on the screen. So who wrote uh, Citizen Kane? And in the case of a movie, it's a very limited value to say somebody wrote the movie. Uh, somebody wrote the screenplay, yes. But is that writing the movie? No, you don't write a movie. You make a movie. You know, I just happened to write a piece a couple months ago for Commentary Magazine about Chinatown, a movie where it is absolutely impossible to say in any larger sense who is primarily responsible. Is it Roman Polanski, the director? Is it Robert Town? Uh, and as soon as you start going into primary source material on the making of that film, uh, you realize that it was made through a collective process. And Ellington's music, to a great extent, not entirely, not entirely, was created as a collective process. And it has to be understood that way. Now, Ellington is the auteur, to use the, the film criticism term, of the music that his band played. And sometimes he's the, the composer entirely. And sometimes Strayhorn is the composer entirely. The best example I can think of with Strayhorn is a, a work that Ellington wrote in the 60s called Far East Suite whose most beautiful, exquisite movement uh, is a, an ex slow, exotic ballad called Isfahan. Every note of that is by Billy Strayhorn. Ellington gets no credit for it at all, except on the record, where the whole thing is credited to Ellington <laughs> Strayhorn. Right. But, but I ask, now ask yourself this, okay, uh, Strayhorn wrote every bit of it, but he wrote it for a band of improvising, collaborative musicians who had been chosen by Ellington and were led by Ellington. And he learned his own trade from Ellington. So all of a sudden, you, you've just got a more complicated situation here. 
I wrote Duke to make people think about these questions. I didn't write it to discredit Ellington in any way. Duke Ellington's a genius. He's one of the towering geniuses of jazz. It doesn't diminish a figure like that to be honest about the nature of his achievement. One more quick break to thank the folks who make the jazz session possible, starting with the members who support it, and also the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music, and Dave Vrabel for the logo. Chuck Ingersoll is the voice of the intro. You can hire him at hearchucknow.com. Follow the jazz session on Twitter at jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, and on Instagram at The Jazz Session. Right now I'm posting a photo every weekday from more than 20 years of shows and interviews. Take a second right now, if you would, to rate and review The Jazz Session on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really improves my ability to reach new listeners. Thanks. If you'd like to keep up to date on my podcast, poetry, and more, you can subscribe to my twice-monthly newsletter. Go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. Now back to the show. We'd be missing a beat here if we didn't talk about Duke as a, a band leader and a selector of talent, uh, which is, you know, a, along with Miles Davis, maybe the they're the, the two examples that always come to my mind when I think about people who can find who they need to be in their band and use right. who is in the band. Can you say something about Duke and how he assembled his musicians who were uh, often a pretty disparate cast of characters, stylistically disparate, speaking? Disparate, eccentric, difficult, uh, and not always in conventional by conventional standards the best players he wasn't like benny goodman say who was looking to find uh, a saxophone player a trumpet player a trombone player who could read the part down who was absolutely reliable uh, who produced an essentially conventional sound uh, that would fit into the blend of the band ellington didn't care about that at all he liked unusual eccentric musicians uh, the greatest example of this is the trombone player, Tricky Sam Nanton, one of the strangest sounding trombone players in the history of jazz, uh, used mutes to make his instrument sound like he could talk, um, had a, quite a narrow range uh, as a player. Um, he would have been at a loss in a more conventional setting. Ellington picked him because these sounds excited him. Because he heard them and he said, I can do something with this. This is, this is a color, an instrumental color that inspires me. He always chose his musicians with that in mind. Um, and that is not by any way, by any means, the normal practice of big band leaders. So much so that it actually threw some highly uh, gifted major jazz musicians off the scent. Jack Teagarden, the greatest trombone player in the history of jazz, 
claimed never to like the Ellington band. He said they play out of tune, they've got a bad blend. Uh, and if you're comparing them to Artie Shaw, I guess there's a sense in which that's true. But the point is that Ellington didn't, wasn't trying to make that kind of conventional, perfectly blended sound. He wanted something different. He was thinking in terms of not blending colors, but juxtaposing them, layering them. He, he was actually a, a, quite a talented amateur painter. He started out as, a, as an artist, visual artist. And he brought that mindset into composing. And that's how he chose his musicians and put up with an extremely high degree of extremely bad behavior from you. I mean, really bad behavior, people falling asleep on the bandstand because they were high. Uh, there were there were members of the band who were famous for that. Paul Gonzalez, the, the great tenor sax player, um, was notorious for nodding off uh, during ensembles. And Ellington would put up with this as long as you could deliver when the spotlight was on you. As long as you got to the bus reasonably on time, he would put up with this crap uh, because he didn't care. He didn't keep, he, he didn't, that wasn't what he cared about. He just cared about what you could give him and his own composing process. Speaking of Gonzalez and his nodding off, you tell a hilarious story in the book, which I'd never heard before, that uh, Duke would often pick Gonzalez to solo when he had nodded off. And then Gonzalez got wise to that. And so when he had people in the audience that he wanted to show off for, he would pretend to nod off so that Duke would pick him for a solo and he could play, which yeah. I just thought was great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, sooner or later, they all figured this out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it was, as a general rule, it was a really good way of making somebody sober up. Uh, if, <laughs> if they're going out of focus in the bandstand and Duke decides, ladies and gentlemen, we will now feature the artistry of Paul Gonzalez. Uh, <laughs> you're on the spot, baby. Deliver or die. And, you know, uh, what you said about him kind of using these musicians as a as a painter might use different colors, I think is really borne out by when you hear any other band play Ellington's music, which, yes. you know, which is not to besmirch many other great ensembles who play Duke's uh, pieces. But when you hear them played by anybody other than the musicians Ellington handpicked, they just don't sound the same. I'll tell you when you really notice that is when they're playing Ellington transcriptions, not just an Ellington tune but the actual Duke Ellington arrangement himself as it was played by his band. That never sounds right. And it doesn't sound right precisely because um, it's not just the notes on the page, but it was these men playing those notes. And very often, I mean, they played them the same way every night, uh, like, like most jazz musicians at that period. Uh, they would often play set solos uh, and... You can hear this when there are existing multiple takes from recording sessions or sometimes live material. You know, they're, they're playing exactly what they always play. But you couldn't do it because you're not them. That was part of what Billy Strayhorn called the Ellington Effect. Thank you. 
I don't know that maybe this is trite, but I still feel when I listen to Ellington, like in many ways, he was ahead of even our time. Like we just haven't well, caught up in every all the time. Well, I, he was he was radically original. I talk about his failings as an artist and a man and Duke because that's part of what you do when you write a serious critical biography of somebody like this. But they're completely overwhelmingly outweighed. By the achievements. Um, this is a man who, as far back as the 20s and well into the late 60s, is writing music that we still want to listen to today. Um, and that's just not true of, of most of the jazz composers of that period, most of the big band leaders. Um, uh, Ellington's music is alive for us. Um, the reason why it is, it's not simple. It is, it is this amalgam of uh, the Ellington effect, the combination of the, uh, of the composition of the musicians of the moment, uh, Ellington's extreme sensitivity to making everything new in the moment. But whatever the reasons are, uh, I'm not sure that ahead of his time is precisely the right word because uh, Ellington was not a precedent setter. This is something that we often get wrong. We typically think of part of what it means to be a great artist is that people want to imitate you. They, they want to base their work on you. And scarcely anybody even tried to imitate or be directly influenced by the Ellington band. Uh, Charlie Barnett did, and, and his band could sometimes sound a bit like Ellington. But for the most part, there are no successors to Ellington. None at all. He's not. He's not that kind of artist. That That is a testament to his extreme originality. So, Terry, before we close, we've talked a lot about uh, Ellington as a, as a band leader, as a composer, as a, a synthesist of melodic ideas, but we haven't talked all that much about him as a personality. Can you, can you give us a, a sketch of Ellington the personality? Well, he was charismatic and unscrupulous. I think those two... <laughs> Those two words box the compass with him. Uh, he uh, maybe it would be more correct to say he was an opportunist. Um, he was determined, as many geniuses are, to arrange his life in such a way as to facilitate his doing his work, and he wouldn't let anything get in the way of that. He was also a man of very powerful fleshly appetites. Um, um, for women to the very end of his life, for food until the point where he realized that he just couldn't go on eating like that, at which point he stopped and then became ascetic, really. I mean, he would, he, he lived on um, broiled steak and grapefruit juice and hot water uh, in the last 30 years of his life. Uh, but he could not get enough of women. Um, and they inspired him. Uh, sometimes in the most direct and almost crude way. I mean, one of his most beautiful compositions is a piece called Warm Valley, which is an impressionistic portrait of exactly what it sounds like it's about. <laughs> um, he was 
rather willing to do you dirty if he felt that he needed to, uh, to steal your credit, uh, to get the copyrights. Um, but I don't think he did these things just to be a, an asshole. Let's put it that way. He did them because he knew what he was. He knew that he was a great artist and he was absolutely determined to organize his life to facilitate the making of art. And that was not an easy thing. Uh, I mean, consider who he is. He's a black man uh, at, in America in the first half of the 20th century, um, leading an extremely public life. Uh, he's a, a serious composing artist who's working in the popular field, uh, who's leading a big band, an expensive big band out on the road. And he needs that band to compose. This whole composing process is, is based on having a band. Um, if he hadn't been a ruthless opportunist, he he could wouldn't he wouldn't have functioned, and we wouldn't have had that music. So, you know, I I said at the beginning, he wasn't necessarily a person I would have wanted to work with, but you know, when it comes down to the nut cutting, I'm not sure that's true. There were very few people, very few musicians who turned down an offer to play with Ellington even if they knew what it meant, even if they knew the kind of person he was, because they knew that, that it would afford them an experience that would be um, unlike anything they'd ever had, unlike anything they would ever have. And, of course, for all of this opportunism, he was, a, he was also charismatic and therefore greatly loved by women and men. Uh, I mean, people were drawn to him because of his enormous charm, uh, uh, the kind of man who could, uh, as the saying goes, charm the birds down from the trees. The thing was, then he'd eat them. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's the ultimate ending. The book is Duke, A Life of Duke Ellington. Its author is Terry Teachout. Terry, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you about this and an even greater pleasure to read it. And now I have to go read Pops so that I can uh, call you back and we can do this one more time. I'm delighted, man. You'll be reading a very different kind of book about a very different kind of man, but one who was also a genius. Thank you so much for your time, Terry. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. If you value what you just heard, become a member for $5 or $10 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Thanks to my guest this week, Terry Teachout. Next week's show features pianist Lynn Ariel. Until then, support live music whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.